You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. And we will be in Micah 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly. And say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast a line by by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children. You take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about in utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and take a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is light. And light is a disinfectant. It cleanses, it exposes, it purifies. And so we ask now that you would take up this word, that we would hear it, that we would believe it, and that we would hope in it. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, The other night, um, my wife and I, as we tend to do um, during the Advent season, um, sat down to watch a Christmas movie, and that night we watched Spirited. Jenny says no, I'm not sure why, that worries me, maybe I missed something in the movie. Um, Spirited is kind of a a modern comedic take on uh, A Christmas Carol, Um, And while there are a number of theological issues with Christmas Carol in general, most notably works righteousness being kind of the whole foundation of the thing, um, there is an interesting kind of uh, uh, mode that that, that runs throughout that narrative. And in spirited kind of this modern take, um, the the dead uh, spirits who are going to come and haunt the soul um, uh, on Christmas Eve uh, spend the entire year combing through Um, the life of the person that they're going to come and attempt to redeem on Christmas Eve. They they attempt to expose, understand, see um, the weaknesses, the sins, the foibles, um, the wickedness that's been done by this person, all in order to um, come on Christmas Eve and, and, and shed a light on 
all that this person had done, to kind of show um, the, the wickedness, the evil um, that their life had been marked by in the hopes that that person would repent of that evil, become cheerful, and be nice. Um, but at the heart of that story is something that we all find profoundly disturbing. If, if, if we admit, ourself, admit to ourselves, um, this is why we all hate going to the dentist. If you're a dentist here, I'm sorry, no one likes you. Um, uh, we don't like going to the doctor. Um, uh, there's maybe a certain kind of person, and maybe you can relate or can't, um, who, who just avoids going to the doctor unless there's just an absolute necessity. You've got to go to the doctor. Um, we, we don't like going those places because how many times have you gone to the dentist um, and, and then not had something to tell you that's wrong with you? Even if you don't have any cavities, they talk to you about how you're not flossing enough. I mean, whatever the thing is, um, we, we don't like going to the doctors because the doctor's primary job is to shine a light and expose some problem, which is why we don't like, I mean, we like doctors theoretically, but we don't like going to them. Um, dentists, we're just more honest and we don't like them at all. Um, this kind of central idea, this uh, natural aversion to light being shined on problems, on sin, on wickedness, lay at the heart of um, what Micah wants to put his finger on in chapter 2. Remember, we began last week by looking at the introduction to Micah in Micah chapter 1, um, and I laid out for you that Micah runs through a series, three series of three cycles. Um, that those cycles run through um, a, a word of warning, a word of judgment, and then a word of consolation or promise. Um, and that happens three times. We come now in chapter 2, um, moving from the word of warning to a word of judgment in chapter 2. Um, and we will end today with the final two verses, which is the, first, um, the end of the first cycle and the first word of consolation or comfort and promise. And at the heart of this text is the declaration that one of the signs of the judgment of God is a people who do not want to hear about their sin, who don't want their lives exposed, who want to silence anyone who names the judgment of God. I want to silence anyone who names um, the, 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 the reality that our lives don't line up with the law of God, that our society doesn't line up with the law of God. We must have those preachers, well, be quiet. So we're going to look at this text in kind of three waves. Um, the first one uh, I titled In the Bleak Midwinter, to keep with Christmas themes. Um, and it is simply a, a, a renaming of, um, uh, maybe a further explanation of the way that the idolatry of chapter 1 is manifesting itself socially and societally in chapter 2. Which is one fundamental idea that, that um, we've lost in our modern and secular age. Um, we've come to believe that you can have religious beliefs over here, and they can belong in the religious silo, and they're largely irrelevant to um, social so, so society and how society functions, um, how the economy functions, how politics function. The idea in our secular age is that 
religion, what you believe about God, what you believe about the afterlife, what you believe about um, who God is and what God has said and, and how salvation um, should be conceived of or how it occurs, um, can, can belong over here in the private sphere, um, while um, things like economics and things like politics and things like how society functions and business and work, um, those things go over here and the two are largely irrelevant. The Bible says that's just balderdash. I love that word. It's just not true. Um, the, the, the core issue in both Israel and Judah that, that was named by Micah in chapter 1 is idolatry. The, the rampant paganism of Israel in the north had spread through these towns to Jerusalem and to Judah in the south. And what's fascinating is as you move from those seemingly, what we would categorize as religious problems or theological problems in chapter 1 are manifestly seen in chapter 2 by how people treat one another. This is true over and over and over again in the Bible. What you believe about God is determinative, foundational to how you treat people. What you believe about God, what you believe about what is true and beautiful and good, what you believe theologically about the universe is inextricably linked to your politics. What you believe about who God is and how God saves us and what the good news is is absolutely inseparable from what you think about work and the economy and how you treat your neighbors. You cannot separate the two. And we have lived within a society, a modern kind of Western um, and, and relatively new, as you look at the history of the world, extremely new, as you look at the history of the world, conception in which what you do religiously, what you do Sunday morning, the word you hear preached on Sunday, and the songs you sing, and what you believe is happening here on a Sunday, um, that the modern belief is that it has very little to do with how you live out in the world on Monday. It might have a, an impact morally, it might have an impact Ethically, it might make you sweeter to your neighbors, but in lar largely in part has nothing to do with how society goes, how it functions. Micah 1 and 2 stand in stark contrast to that false belief. In chapter 2, in light of that idolatry, um, Micah now describes what that idolatry, how that idolatry manifests itself in society. And he does so by declaring a woe upon particular members of that society. Look at verse 1. Specifically, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. What has this idolatry wrought? It's wrought people who, when they go to sleep at night, as they're falling asleep, they're dreaming up new ways to be wicked. They're imagining, making plans and strategies of ways to do evil. They, you know, that, that 
small period of time in which you get to kind of set your dreams for the night, and they always go haywire. Mine always starts off with something exciting and fun, and then I actually fall asleep, and they, everything goes haywire. And next thing I know, I'm like running from a tidal wave or on a train that's going off the tracks, but it started with me on a vacation on a train in Europe. It's really nice. And then I fall asleep, and we're plummeting. Um, um, but these people that, that, that are described here are those who, while they're in that moment, right before sleep, they're conceiving of what they want to do tomorrow, what evil they want to do tomorrow. And then when the morning comes, they don't put those things aside. They don't say, oh, that was a, that was a morally questionable way to fall asleep. They do it. They do the evil they dreamed up. Why? Because they can, the text says. In other words, there's no, there, there's, there, there's no containing this. Um, there's no societal pressures to keep these evil things at bay. To at least be ashamed enough of what you dreamed about um, that you don't go and do them the next day. In other words, the the structures of society, the implements of justice, this is going to come up um, a couple of times, particularly next week in chapter 3. The things that were supposed to keep evil at bay, that were supposed to keep evil restrained, have have collapsed So that people dream up evil things. They dream up ways of stealing. They dream up sexual immoralities. They dream up ways of destroying people. And then when they wake up, there's nothing to keep them from doing it. This is the direct result of a city, of a country, of a nation being overrun with paganism and idolatry. This is, in fact, following the sequence that's laid out in Micah, the section on judgment. So the warning, the thing being condemned is the idolatry. What does the judgment of God look like Against that idolatry. God leaves evil, at least for a time, unrestrained. This is a theme, again, throughout scripture. You see it most notably, if you can remember it, in Romans chapter 1. What does God do to a people who refuse to worship him and instead worship idols? He lets them do whatever it is they want. And in Romans chapter 1, that is the evidence of the wrath of God being poured out. Judgment of God is not some sort of divine retributive spanking. It is God saying, if you want to destroy everything, have at it. It is locking the door on the insane asylum of a society overrun with paganism and idolatry and sin and therefore blindness and God locking the door on the asylum and saying, let's see how that goes. 
So we come to the judgment of God. And the first way it manifests itself is those who dream up evil deeds get up in the morning and they do them. And then it specifically names two different kinds of sin that were predominant in that day. One um, is that they covet fields and they seize them. They're thieves. They, they just take whatever they want from other people. Um, and, and they do so cruelly. So, so um, he says in verse 2, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. And then he goes on to say, um, look at verse 9, the women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. So one, they go take fields, they take whatever they want financially, they steal from people, and then two, in particular, um, they hate women. They drive them out of their houses. They take from them the place that was meant to be their delight. And, look at the next line. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. Um, the, the language here in the Hebrew is, is, is fascinating. It talks about um, it, it, it says that children are an ornament or, or the expression of the glory and the image and the beauty of God and you take that away from them. So first, evil is dreamed up and done with no restraint. Verses one and two. Second, you, you find a society that despises women and hates children. Does it sound familiar to you? We live in a society that hates children and oftentimes in the name of liberating women hates them. So judgment has come. And here comes Micah. Stepping into a society like this one. Frankly, a society just like ours. And he begins to proclaim to them. He begins to shine a light like a really aggressive dentist. On all this evil. And you might think that the response to that kind of clarity, to name this kind of wickedness and evil, to reveal it for what it is, to warn them of God's impending judgment and their own destruction, that there might be a response in the midst of this people it says, thank you. We were blind. We couldn't see how bad things were. Thank you, Micah. We can now see. We can see the debauched nature of our society. We can see the wickedness of this idolatry and this paganism. We, 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 can, we can finally see what God thinks about all these things we're doing. But listen to their response. To Micah, verse 6. Do not preach. One should not preach of such things. 
disgrace will not overtake us. So God raises up a faithful prophet. He raises up a preacher who with courage and faithfulness and shocking language will declare to the people the reality of their sins, the promise of God's judgment, warning them that destruction is coming. The response is not, thank you. The response is not, thanks be to God for his mercy. The response is, shut up. The response is, stop being so divisive. Stop using that kind of language. It's offensive. Stop being such a downer. Don't you know there's hurting people? They're just doing the best they can. The response is, stop preaching. This is precisely what we find in our own day. People much like the Judah, and I'm not talking here about unchurchy people. I'm talking about Christians, evangelical Christians. You proclaim a word of judgment a word that exposes our sins for what they are. And the response over and over and over again is, why do you have to say it like that? Why are you so divisive? Why are you so angry? Meanwhile, Blog posts go up on major evangelical institutions telling us all that we can learn from Taylor Swift. While babies are murdered, sexual immorality runs rampant in our streets, justice um, gets reformatted so that it includes stealing, And if someone arises and points it out, if someone stops at a coffee shop and says, don't you see how insane this is? Told, do not preach. Quit being so harsh. Why, why, why do you treat all this with such seriousness, meanness? Don't be mean. Be nice. 1989 was a classic album. Surely something to learn there. And then this work comes. Verse 11. 
If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. So we have an American evangelicalism. We have Christians longing to have their ears itched, to be, to be told words that just make them feel better. And this is a perfect description of verse 11. I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. That would be the preacher of this people. Why? Why would that be the preacher for this people? What does wine and strong drink do at first? It has this magical ability to blind you to the reality, the difficulty, the pain, and make you feel for just a minute like everything's fine. It numbs you to the harsh realities. It feeds you endorphins, and for just a minute, that perfect minute where you're blind to the devastation that surrounds you, and you're feeling nice, that's the preachers for this people. And this too is the judgment of God. Now where do you think we find ourselves in 2023 in American evangelicalism? Remember, chapter one was not just about the rampant paganism in the northern tribes. It was also aimed at the kind of blending together of paganism, the paganism of the north, and the worship of Yahweh in the south. And against that blending, against that unfaithfulness to God while claiming to be faithful to God, God condemns it and he sends a judgment. And that judgment is evil, running, rampant, everywhere, all around them. And the silencing of prophets who arise naming that evil and the wild success pastors who are there to simply make you feel better. What time do you think it is? So God brings a word of judgment. A word of blindness and stupor. A word of Describing a people who are completely unwilling to see the nature of their sin and understand it. And so I ask the question, and I want to let the last two verses answer the question How do we not be this kind of people? How do we become a people who are willing to go to the doctor 
I won't go to dentist yet. That's a level of sanctification that not many of us are ready for. How do we become the kind of people that when a word like this is spoken, our response is not shut your mouth. Our response is, oh God, have mercy on us. How do we become the kind of people that can hear this word who, who, who don't want to be drunk with a stupor and therefore blind to the light? But a people made able to see. I think the key to that question, the seed of it is contained in these first two verses which point forward to chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 7 of Micah. Those are the, kind of the places where consolation begins to arise. L- listen to verse 12. I, I love the, the immediate transition. So you come out of 11, where these people are just drunk on bad preaching. In verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Verse 12, he has a promise. And then verse 13 begins to describe how that promise will be fulfilled. What's the promise? Here's a people that are going to go into exile. Here's a people who are going to be tortured and decimated. Here's a people that are going to know and experience firsthand um, a, a taste of the wrath of God, the judgment of God against their sin. And yet on the other side of it and through it, God says this, I will assemble all of you like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Not a noisy multitude who are noisy because, um, because they're, 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 they're sad or, they're, or they've been destroyed, but a noisy multitude, um, a, a flock of men um, who, who are gathered on a hillside, brought there by God, saved by God. How is he going to do that? And then we're going to end on, how does this make us a people who don't want drunk preaching, I want faithful preaching, who love the words of God, even when they're hard words. Verse 13, he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. Um, This uh, book, Micah, it it gives some of the clearest pointers to um, the the advent of Jesus, his birth. And the famous text about Bethlehem, um, the the coming of the king, is given to us in Micah chapter 3 and 4. And here we see this description of two individuals. One, the breach opener. I believe is is most clearly pointing to John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes before Jesus. We read read about him, I think, last week in our New Testament reading. Um, He he comes before Jesus. He's the one. He answers the question um, when he's told, who are you? He's asked, who are you? Um, He answers by pointing back to Isaiah chapter 40 and saying, I am the voice 
crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I believe that he's the opener of the breach. And what did he preach? Repentance. He he proclaimed the sin of the people and called them to repent of their sin. So here's a people condemned by their sin and what's going to liberate them? What's going to gather them together as the remnant of the Lord? What's going to gather them together as a sheep on a hillside, well cared for by God? A breach opener. A breach opener comes and declares repentance. He comes and declares, turn from your sin, turn from your idolatry, turn from your wickedness, turn from your evil. Put these things away. This breach opener is followed by a king who is the Lord, who leads them out from their captivity, who leads them out from the condemnation of their sin who leads them out from the wrath of God, that they might be his people, that they might know and love his mercy, that they might be free. Here's the truth we must learn. Soft words make hard hearts. And hard hearts always seek out soft words. When a hard biblical word comes, hard hearts go find soft words. Oh, but hard Words make soft hearts. Soft hearts, what marks them? It's repentance. You hear a hard word as a word of mercy, a word of warning. And so you hate your sin and you flee from the judgment to come to find mercy in the God who loves to show mercy. The God who loves to forgive sins. The God whose great purpose is restoration and redemption and forgiveness. That he might lead you in pastures that are green and fill those pastures with a noisy multitude giving thanks and singing the praises of the one who has brought them out of captivity. Let's pray and prepare for communion.